This video was originally recorded September 2019 at the home of Robert and Nena Thurman. Okay, how are you all? Today is, um, it's an auspicious day. <laughs> I don't, actually, I feel sad. There was a terrible hurricane. And the Bahamas got, some parts of the Bahamas got really, really blasted. And now the Hurricane Dorian is heading up the coast. And uh, in all of the media that I've ever seen, only Democracy Now! mentioned climate crisis. CNN, none of them. NBC, ABC, of course not Fox News or Climate Denier Central. Did they mention that this is another Category 5 storm? Diminished now to a little bit less, but sat on the Bahamas as Category 5 for some time. It's like that's once in a 50 years. In the old days, now it's every year. Puerto Rico, Haiti, than now the Bahamas. And uh, it's a disgrace that the media is so corrupted by taking ads from the oil industry and the dark money, uh, you know, but although they don't do it as dark money, they do it as oil industry, that they, and the car industry probably, all their ads that they take. So the, the media people are not true journalists anymore, or very few of them. It's really, really worrisome. We have to have a major reform of the whole fourth estate whenever we get the government away from the mad king. <laughs> a wonderful article I read, I think by Matt Taibbi, yes, definitely by Matt Taibbi, only Matt Taibbi can write so brilliantly. And so funnily, I, I literally could hardly read a sentence after a while. I got cracking up, totally cracking up. He was describing being at a Trump rally in Cincinnati and what it's like recently. And it's entitled, it's in Rolling Stone, you should look it up. It's called Trump 2020, Be Very Afraid. And it really is a, so brilliant about how, in spite of this man being a known criminal, and mad, and, and nuts, and completely uninformed, totally unfit, his opponents are so complacent in a funny way still, that they might lose to him again. And the people are so disillusioned with politics and the media that they might just decide to continue with the TV show, you know, the uh, reality TV show that he puts on for them. So, you know, I definitely hope not, but his article is scary and very well taken and very strong, as always his writing is, besides being riotously funny. <laughs> I mean, really funny. And, uh, okay, so, so uh, I'm sad about that, but it's auspicious because I'm thinking about the miraculous in the context of Buddhist yoga. And it may turn out it's being investigated by the wonderful Singleton and Mallinson team. And it may turn out that all yoga is Buddhist anyway, in spite of even what the Indians kind of forgot about. Might turn out.
to be that this, what we think of as yoga nowadays could be very much something, a gift of, another gift of the Buddha to India rather than something coming out of the old conquering Vedic people who, who set, settled down in northern India. A few weeks I'm giving a teaching with my friend Isa at Menla, which we've done before, called Shamans and Siddhas. And, uh, you know, the sort of duality between... Now, there is, in some cultures, there is a really serious duality. And it has to do with the fact that in some forms of shamanism, uh, animal sacrifice is part of the rituals that the shamans use. And Buddhism, Buddha was against, never wanted animal sacrifice. Even though he allowed Buddhist monks to accept uh, meat food, if they get it from a house where that's where they're eating that, and that how they didn't know that that house was eating meat, and it's just whatever they're given. And even they're, they're not allowed to refuse, unless they are a strict vegetarian or they have a health reason. And this was a point of contention between Buddhism and Jainism in the old days, but it was just typical Buddhist pragmatism. If, if someone was about to cook a meal and we're going to slaughter a chicken or something to make chicken soup, then the monk has to leave and say, no, thank you. So, so then that, if you extrapolate that into the modern situation where you have the mass market, and then if you're, if you go to a market and buy meat, in a way you are asking it for yourself very indirectly. But on the other hand, of course, if you do, they're not, they're not gonna like, you know, give away all their cows or liberate them to be back on the, in the plains if they're in the meat industry. But on the other hand, if you can create a movement and a whole huge horde of people go vegan and vegetarian, then you really save some lives of some cows and you have diminished the meat industry, which is going to be necessary on this planet and will happen inevitably and it will be some people will take the lead in that. There's a wonderful book by Jeremy Rifkin called Beyond Beef that is wonderful in its analysis of the harmful effects of meat industries all over the world. But he never discusses or mentions or studies, and he's a great scholar, so he should have studied. He would say a lot about it, that India moved to vegetarianism kind of naturally. You know, they from these Buddhism and then Hinduism took over from Buddhism and Jainism, the notion of ahimsa, and then they have the sacred cow for the Hindus and so on. And so Buddhism sort of naturally, economically moved to vegetarianism without having read Jeremy Drifkin's book <laughs> or dealing with the horrible mass, you know, uh, meat, you know, uh, factory meat production, which is so atrocious and so inhumane and so horrible, really. So, uh, Anyway, the Siddhas were not necessarily vegetarian, all of them. But nevertheless, the idea of making holy meat and killing as if it were doing something for your ancestors or for your sickness, use scapegoat type of rituals, Buddha completely was not in favor of that. And uh, therefore, when Buddhism encountered Tibetan shamanism, Mongolian shamanism, in other and in other cultures, Southeast Asian shamanism and so forth, Indian shamanism for that matter, uh, Buddha insisted on uh, not what they call blood sacrifice, and um, 
and actually they influence therefore those traditions very dramatically because of that. On the other hand, the Buddha was a kind of shaman himself, and uh, he did uh, go up a tree. He he was born under a tree. When his mother leaned on one, he was enlightened. He reached his final enlightenment under a tree. And the tree of enlightenment is a major symbol in Buddhism. Uh, because like the tree of the nervous system, the tree of enlightenment, the tree as the bridge between heaven and earth, you know, all the, the archaic techniques of ecstasy, all the old methods of the shaman, traveling to the heavens to meet the ancestors, traveling to underworld, the roots of the tree going to underworld, tree is a big deal, you know, for shamans. And he passed away under two trees, the Buddha did. And so he was a master of all three worlds, what it's called. There are three, three ways of designating three worlds as underworld, surface of earth, and heavens. And another way is the desire realm, the realm of pure form or subtle form, subtle matter, and then the realm of the non-material realm the realm of relative disembodiment. So uh, so therefore there's a natural affinity between Buddha and the shamans. I started popping in my mind is the story about when Narapa visited Tilapa at first. He met him by the side of a river where Tilapa was just finishing a fish dinner. And then Narapa was outraged because he was a bra- as well as a Buddhist monk, or previously had been a Buddhist monk, he had resigned, to go seek a Siddha teacher and do Tantra, advanced level Tantra. But um, he, um, and he and then he met him in the forest, and I'll tell that story more later, but but uh, when he met him, he was eating fish, and then he was kind of horrified. He said, well, how can you be a, a yogi and a pure person and eat fish? What fish, said Dilapa, and the fish skeletons on his plate reinfleshed themselves and jumped off the plate into the river and swam off. So, so what this, and then this, that's the topic of the miraculous. And we only call it miraculous because we are brought up in this materialist culture where mind, you know, is not supposed to rule over matter unless you're a woo-woo sort of person. And, um, uh, and therefore we don't think that Yuri Geller bent spoons really, you know, even though we was reaffirmed in the Matrix movie. And uh, we uh, we ourselves don't think we really have minds. Uh, did I ever tell you the story of when I was meditating late at night when I was a Buddhist monk, and my own Mongolian teacher, who was definitely a Siddha, showed up in his usual way of always interrupting me meditating. It was one of the favorite things he had. And he knew every minute, when he knew every time I was meditating, particularly, he always would show up when I was going into like, some kind of disembodied state. I was leaving the body. I was feeling that dis- dis- detached from it or something. Going a little bit experimenting with formless states, a little tiny taste. I'm not really at it. But whenever I would get close to it, even, bam, he would show up and interrupt me. And this one time was late at night. I was deeply meditating. I had been studying for maybe two or three years. I was, uh, I, I was, uh, really concentrating. He shows up and turns on the light in this chapel. I had a little candle. And in the chapel at the monastery we built together in New Jersey. And, um, what are you doing? He says, and then I go, what do you mean? What am I doing? I'm meditating. Well, why are you meditating? 
What's the point? I said, what do you mean, why am I meditating? I'm, I'm a Buddhist monk. I'm a student. I'm trying to be, I want to become enlightened. You have to meditate as well as learn. He said, yeah, but you can't get enlightened. I said, why not? He says, you're an American. And I said, what? But never, yeah, I'm born in New York, but I'm a Buddhist monk. I'm complaining. I knew he was referring to disbelief in former and future life as a cultural thing in the West. And, um, but I said, I do believe in that. I'm, I'm fully involved in that. I think it's very normal. You know, I was trying to complain. He says, no. He says, maybe you do in one way, but he says, in another way, what gets enlightened is your mind. And you Americans think you don't have one, he said. So then I exploded in protest and was completely distracted. And we went off and had a big debate over some yogurt at three in the morning in the monastery kitchen, which was his purpose, of course, to rattle me. But in a way, and I argued with him for weeks over that one, but long time later, I realized, of course, he's right. We don't think there's sort of somehow, we don't identify with with really what is deeper in our being, which is a feeling of something that is not quite coarse material, although, of course, it, we decide to move our hands, so somehow it, it, it interrelates with what we think of as coarse material, you know, limbs and muscles and, and sensations and feelings, but it somehow registers a place that's kind of more vague, more subtle. You know, some people philosophically would say it's non-material, but uh, but some people would say it is uh, it is subtle matter. I would say you know, tantric science, tantric abhidharma, would call it uh, subtle material, super subtle, subtle and super subtle. The mind, in other words, and therefore we don't have a kind of faith that if we really put our mind to something material, even we would affect it with our mind. We we you know that we sort of will do it you know, if we're wishing for something, something like that. We'll do that. But we kind of start out defeated ahead of time. Because we think, well, I wish, it's just mental, and it can't really cause a physical effect. And if we ever did see a mental thing seeming to cause a physical effect, we would think that was a miracle. But in some other cultures, more enlightened cultures, that's not really the case. And in fact, they think that such things are normal. And therefore, for example, I never use the term supernatural about miraculous things. I only use supernormal in, a, in, a, in our cultural context because in, in the cultural context of India and some of the other Buddhist Asian countries and Hindu and Taoist ones, there are supernormal things that happen. So, so anyway, so the Siddhas... So the shaman in a society, I mean, I'm not Isa, but I would say the role of the shaman, and by the way, the word shaman, I did, I've heard that Mircea Eliad's a famous book called Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy, Shamanism, Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy, has been you know, criticized in some way, like his book on yoga was. But I still like the book. You know, maybe there's some fine points, you know, whatever, because it's been updated but I really like the idea, and his idea is that the shaman may come, the word may come from shramana. Shramana is a term applied to Buddha during the time of his quest for enlightenment, and then afterwards when he lived as a homeless monk, or mendicant rather. Monk connotes the Christian thing, but really mendicant is better. 
And uh, Shramana means one who wanders or who seeks. And it has a connotation of being uh, seeking a rest from the weariness of the world. And therefore it connects to the word ashram, which means where you go to rest, you know, on retreat or, you know, withdraw from from uh, mundane activities, you know. And a shramana then is one who withdraws from their mundane social roles and seeks to seek truth, to seek enlightenment, to seek to understand the nature of reality. If they're theists, they might want to seek the oneness with God or whatever it is. That's a shramana. And many of the Indian shramanas wandered up into the Himalayas and over the Himalayas and into Central Asia. And so the word then may have been picked up by, this is a storm, probably somewhere else, we're getting an electric thing, um, may have been picked up uh, and then, you know, used or became sort of used in Central Asia and eventually in Siberia, where they, where some people, more modern anthropologists, think the word shaman came from, from through Russian, maybe. Russian itself, by the way, is very connected to Sanskrit, very, very its grammar and everything has a lot of relationship and, and vocabulary has relation to Sanskrit. So, so there's sort of an Indo-Russo-Siberian belt that may be there. So, uh, and then when they do that, they, they connect to sort of the powers of nature and they become healers in their society and leaders and psychologists, psychiatrists. For people who get nervous or who don't function well in whatever community they live in. And uh, teachers. And um, they often pair up with the sort of the chief, you know, who deals with sort of mundane production matters and defense matters. King, later the kings. And uh, they, so that is the nature of the, of the shaman. And Buddha certainly was, that's what he was. Of course, he was originally born in the king class. But he betrayed that class, he he abandoned it, he didn't think it was that important a class, although it was the boss class in his time, and he decided he would find the true nature of reality and help people with their true problems, which a shaman does, and the true problems of a being, of course, are suffering of birth, suffering of aging, suffering of sickness, suffering of death, and then lots of other interpersonal and other kinds of issues. And um, he wanted to, you know, suffering of not knowing what life is for, wasting life, wasting one's own life, all of these things. So, so in that sense, shamans and and Buddha and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are very similar. And then among the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, there's a kind of Buddha that Shakyamuni Buddha definitely himself was. We definitely think. And um, then many of a number of his mendicant disciples also became that. And although they kind of kept from the public in India for centuries even, the levels of preaching and practice that they were engaged in. And for 400 years or so, four or 500 years, the mendicant mode was the main profession of the Buddhist seeker. For the next four or 500, added to that, that was continued, but added to that was the Bodhisattva mode, which that might mean you wouldn't be a mendicant, you would remain a lay person, or you'd be mendicant and then again, then again a lay person, although or both, and uh, and then finally you have the esoteric people, the tantrikas. In the next five hundred years, last five hundred years of this period of India before it became conquered by external people, 
um, who had their own ideologies and didn't conform to the Indian way of life uh, around a thousand years ago. So those 15 to 1800 years when Buddha's, the Buddhist energy was there, uh, they were really basically shamans, but the most of form, the, the siddhas, which means the one who has achieved, the old translation of it by the European scholars, they called it Zauber, which means a sorcerer. <laughs> but they, you know, it has a negative connotation, the word sorcerer, but magical indeed they were, like shamans are, and they dealt with the miraculous indeed. Uh, and, uh, you know, people, modern people say, well, that's silly. And that we know that's not possible because we're materialists, but that's there. It's also there in Christian mysticism, Sufi mysticism, um, the great um, yogis, let's call them, of that, those traditions, miraculous things happen around them for sure. Like St. Francis, you know, hanging out with vicious animals, the wolves, people having visions. Uh, my father translated a book called The Little Flowers, Les Petits Fleurs, written, I think, by... Um, François Mauriac, which was the life of Francis of Assisi. And he uses from ancient chronicles the idea that sometimes when Francis would have a kind of festival or people would have teaching or some some holidays, feast time, people would come and retreat with him, they would see visions in the sky of Jesus and the angels and the saints and things collectively, which should be miraculous, and which is commonplace in the Buddhist world, actually, as well. So, and these are all disbelieved, of course, and called hagiographic. They have a word hagiographic. Somebody makes a, like a life of a saint or a famous person and adds miracles to it later, and then that's called hagiography. But that's only based on the fact that we think that materialism is the real, the only real reality. And that's only based on the fact that we haven't yet incorporated the insights of quantum physics and relativity fully, where her we realize we don't know what material reality is, actually. And there may be a playing a role in which subtle energies have a play. And they may even have a controlling and a formative play if someone knows how consciously to exist on the levels of the subtle energies. And at least that's certainly the goal of what are called tantric sciences and tantric arts, tantric practices, is to mobilize self-conscious awareness on the super-subtle and subtle levels not just on the coarse body level, <clears throat> although not neglecting the coarse body, of course, but not just on that level. So, so therefore, I've enjoyed working with Isa um, um, on these shamans and siddhas things, and we always do enjoy, have a great time with the people when we come. And, um, and of course, her tradition is a tradition where there is not, they don't do animal sacrifice, of course. And, um, and that, and that would be the way, I think, right now, for example, where Buddhism is being rekindled after communism, like in Mongolia, there's a little bit of a struggle between shamans and siddhas. Uh, well, that, you know, lamas and shamans, you know, they're, they're like, because they're thinking, there, there is a little bit of a movement to return to the old blood shamanism, tribal shamanism, and, um, you know, uh, because of them having been wasted by invasions and things. And then the Buddhists are really upset about that. But I think the best resolution of those struggles is not to um, denigrate uh, or, or deprecate shamanism, but is to move toward a you know trans sublimated shamanism where you 
you are going to the thing and you're doing that and you're you're not making blood sacrifices. The most marvelous ritual the Tibetans have. Some wrong people wrongly think Tibetans mixed shamanism and Buddhism, and that made it a lower form. What they call Lamaism was a lower lower form of Buddhism, but that's really mistaken. The Tibetans did what I'm talking about, really, in a way, which is they revitalized, it transformed shamanism by preventing, by by encouraging, let's say, the shamans to learn another kind of shamanism and not, um, uh, you know, not kill animals, in, in other words, but go through the end. And the, the, the summit of that practice was this marvelous teaching by a Tibetan woman, which it was one of the few Tibetan teachings in the ancient period that fed back into India and was considered a great teaching in India, which otherwise mostly the transmission was from India to Tibet, which is the ritual known as Chu, which I translate and others do also as severance. Um, and what that is, is uh, where you meditate, you go to usually a kind of eerie, sublime, ominous place, where demons might gather, or ghosts, or ghouls, or goblins, and things like that, like cemetery or such place, and you meditate there, and you chant, and you invite all the unsatisfied, you know, ghostly, demonic beings, because anybody who is a ghost or a demon or a goblin, or anything like that, they, they have that form, because of frustration, because of greed, uh, you know, it's a lower form than the human form and is more regressing toward more subsistence levels of life than the human or the divine. And so, but you invite them all to come and feed on you. It's marvelous, really. And you visualize that your own intelligence in the form of a, of a, of a goddess, of a dakini, uh, of a, a kind of witch almost like comes, a divine one and benevolent one, but comes anyway and chops you up in a little piece, takes, slices off your skull and puts it in a bowl, puts it in a tripod, and then then slices up and chops up all your flesh and blood and bones and skeleton. And uh, uh, in doing so, cooks you then with the fire of your own wisdom, and uh, then then you make a delicious nectar ambrosia soup that you feed all these demons with. And then you imagine that you merge with clear light, you know, you transcend death, and you re-embody yourself in a more divine way, having sort of... But then you're ready again to give yourself away. There's a story. I'm going to be reading some stories in the next podcast. See, I'll do a series. I was encouraged by my friends to do something on what I call the poetry of enlightenment. Try to get me out of being my obsession with politics at the moment. And, um, and among, among the greatest poems, of course, in the Buddhist world are the poems of Milarepa and uh, the, the great Saint Milarepa. And I'm going to do his poems, some of them. And there's one that I will do maybe more length, but I'll just tell the story now. It's a marvelous story where he's meditating up near Mount Everest on the high slopes there, Dingri, I think if we're known in Tibetan, that area, or near there. And he's in winter, too, because he has this inner heat where he's always hot, so he doesn't mind being naked in winter, in the, in the Tibetan winter, which is really an intense one, high altitude. 
And these five goddesses come to him, who are the goddesses of the mountains, as it turns out. But at first he doesn't know who they are. He thinks they're some kind of ogress, and they, because they come in very ferocious forms. And they say, oh, we have a nice, juicy-looking yogi here. Well, you're a little skinny, but, you know, you, we, we can barbecue. You'll be delicious. And we're going to, we're going to waste you, you know, because you're on our mountain. He didn't ask, et cetera, et cetera. And he, then he says, don't you dare. I'm the fierce Buddha Hevadra. I'm an archetype Buddha of great power and ferocity. And, um, you know, I'll blow you away, you know, like, um, and then he sprouted all many arms like Hevadra and many heads and faces. And they said, oh, yummy, more arms and limbs. And now you're fatter as a day, as that, as that form you're adopting, and we can barbecue all of the arms, and all of the, we have divine barbecue even, and it's really great. You don't think we could scare us by being like some fierce Buddha or something, an archetype. So then he quickly retreated from that approach of trying to over and dominate them, and said, oh, okay, okay, I apologize, I didn't get really who, how amazing you are, so now let me offer you, invite you to a feast. And then he practiced a kind of jewel ritual where he literally dismembered himself and he cooked himself. And at least in visionary, you can't really tell in the text whether it's visionary or literal. But he sort of basically was willing to feed them from himself, give his own body to them to eat, which of course bodhisattvas do that. And tantric ones do it hundreds of times. You know, because when bodhisattvas do it in an exoteric sense, they they get, they die, and they become reborn again. It's a long, slow process. But tantrikas, they do that, and then they pull themselves back together out of subtle energy, because they're self-conscious on the subtle level. So they can shape flesh, level of flesh and blood and bone. They can shape that uh, from the level of pure, non-atomic, super subtle energy. So, so then he, then they turn into beautiful five goddesses, the, the goddess Jomo. Langma, I think Jomalungma or something that's Mount Everest and, and, uh, or all these other great mountains, you know, K2, they're all goddesses, you know, and they turn really beautiful. And since he's a layman and a yogi, they then get, they get it on with him, you know, they have a great party, a feast. And, um, of course they don't devour him, you know, at all. But it's the willingness to give himself that was what, what moved their mind to love, you know, when they realized he was a genuine person rather than he's just some sort of macho yogi who's going to scare them or something. That they just they laughed when he did that. It's a marvelous. It's a, it's so, and his hundred thousand song. It's song number twenty eight. That particular one. It's really nice. Somebody did a whole thesis on it that I thought was quite fun. I forget the name of the author. So uh, the scholar who did that. So. Um, so the Mahasiddhas. Now, this relates very much to the concept of crazy wisdom, which we hear much about because of scandals coming from different lamas. Um, and um, I think the Zen people sort of adopted some of it because they had some scandals with some of their roshis. And the people who are defending the lamas on the roshis you know, say that, well, they're doing crazy wisdom and they're helping us, really, and maybe they've done what it seemed like what they were doing seemed unethical in terms of sex and power and money, but maybe they were helping us overcome our ego or our detachment. It was, they used that as an excuse. And this is not, 
this is, you know, there's a middle way in interpreting that. It's not 100% wrong in all cases, but it's mostly wrong in most cases. And, um, and it's a misunderstanding of the, of something that is called crazy wisdom. There's a crazy kind of, uh, stage of a yogi, a crazy conduct that yogis get into, and advanced Zen people, I think, too, where they sort of give themselves to the universe. And like, there was one famous Korean guy whose centennial was celebrated, I went to Korea for that, 2013, in 1913, and he was known for his rigorous asceticism, where he was in some place where they had a lot of dreadful blood-drinking bugs, mosquitoes or worse, something would be worse, lychee-type mosquitoes, and um, he was spent a long time just all infested with these, where he had like a body of insects, they were just lived on him. And he meditated like that for years to let them devour him, you know, in a, in a certain way, drink his blood. But somehow he, he replenished it by eating or something so that it made it became a long meditation. And so the idea of giving yourself is a big thing for the enlightened person. And that's crazy. You don't sit and let them bugs eat you, you know. You don't, in a way, crazy without Tantra, you know, the young prince Buddha in a previous life, famous one where he was a prince on a, on a royal picnic and he and his brother went out of the woods and they saw a tigress. It was a time of famine and drought in a country and a tigress was starving to death along with her four cubs. And he noted that he looked down off the cliff top down into the lair and he saw the tigress was about to devour her cubs out of hunger because Apparently in nature that can happen where a mother will devour a batch of cubs in a, in, in straightened circumstance thinking to live and then have a new batch later, you know, have a new batch of cubs later, even though normally that goes to totally of course against even the tiger's maternal instinct where she will fight for her cubs against any predators and so on. But he noticed that it was about to happen. So he, on a pretense, he sent his brother back to the camp to bring some burgers or some food which they would give to the tiger, or the brother brother ran off through the woods. And then he himself jumped down off the cliff, made an offering of his flesh and blood to the tigress and her cubs. And so they ate him. You know, he gave himself to be eaten. And then, you know, then the parents were really upset. Everybody was very upset afterwards. But then he spoke to them in that particular story. He spoke to them from a certain heavenly plane. I said, listen, don't worry, I was delighted to give my body. It gave me a quantum leap in my progress toward Buddhahood. And uh, it wasn't really, I didn't suffer at all, you know. It was like, just wonderful. I really enjoyed it, you know. So, so that's crazy wisdom, too. But then, just like him, that was this rare, rare case. Even where they tell the story in different Buddhist literary versions, they say, now don't go jumping off and feed the first tiger. Because you're a human being, and, you know, you... You might do it on a fit of kind of passionate wish of self-transcendence or self-surrender, but you might not be fully really ready to go, and then you deeply regret it, like, oh no, you know, when they take the first bite, and then you, that it practically no, and you wriggle and try to run away, and it no longer really even becomes a gift. So you need to use your human intelligence to develop the amazing evolutionary progress you can make as a human being in your human life. And don't just do this in a sentimental way, just sort of too fast. They actually say, have a caveat like that. 
And so, so therefore, this is my sort of middle way about crazy wisdom. There is such a thing, of course. But if everybody jumped into the tiger's lairs every day, that would not be crazy wisdom. That would be just crazy. Be stupid. And similarly, if some lama has to like make it with everybody and grab their bodies, you know, and do stuff to them and have them do stuff to the lama and do it all the time to everybody, that is crazy, not crazy wisdom. There might be a particular case of some particular one who's a layman and it's a yogin and a partner is well-trained and a consort, you know, in consort yoga and herself at the same stage in, the, in terms of subtle body and, uh, and you know, inner energy control and so on, where the two can do a kind of super athletic, not normal with sexual type of yoga of developing inner ecstasies of different types for to reach different stages of awareness. That's entirely possible. But that's really rare. And, it, and it's impossible to do it with a partner who's just grabbing kind of off the street, who wouldn't know, how, who would just be thinking it was a case of regular sexuality, maybe secretly and, and worriedly thinking it was a case of rape, and you some stupid llama demanding that you make it with everybody, or, or maybe, you know, whatever it would be, it would, whatever fantasy they might have, it would be harmful to them in the long run. That's why these things always blow up. Because it's not crazy wisdom, it's crazy. Harmful. You know, the, the precept, the third physical precept of the ten precepts of the Buddhists, is and which is shared with all the traditions is they usually translate as adultery, no adultery, but it isn't adultery, it means no abusive sexuality. Not to use adultery is often abusive because it breaks up families, you know, causes social disruption. And so it's also harm often harmful to the people engaged in it. But that's not the only form of of, uh, of sexual abuse. So only positive sexuality uh, which is helpful to the partner, benevolent, and um, uh, or some kind of spiritual practice is is allowed in Buddhist uh, um, ethics. I also I also used to use when I was talking in the in the seventies and eighties about a certain lama who was very licentious and, and also alcohol addicted and, and terrible. In a bad example, in a way, I used to, when his disciples would defend him by saying it's crazy wisdom, it's real great for all of us, and all this kind of thing, I rejected that, and I used to tell the story of the Zen guy, not just Tibetan, who the master had a student who had been studying with him for years, if not decades, and we had a way, the master had developed a thing with him where when he came for the interview with the master, where you check your progress, Dokusan. The master, after some time or immediately, <laughs> would say, say something about emptiness or get out. And kind of push him out of the room. And so then this one time, the guy really struggled to stay. And at that time, the master slammed the door on his leg and broke it. And he had the shock of the pain of a broken bone. And within the shock of that pain of the broken bone, because of the particular exact context of where he was in his progress in his mind, he had a very deep insight, which I consider to have been the way I would explain the insight, which I think is not rocket science, 
when he thought he had something to say about emptiness might have been when he was headed for the demon ghost cave where he was wrongly having an experience or he was having a mistaken experience of what he thought might be emptiness which might be a place outside the world some kind of you know absolutized notion of a separated state and so the 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 harsh uh, bone breaking brought him back into the reality of his body which 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 was where he needed to be so in that sense it was wise it was a useful and benevolent teaching but if that guy had broken the leg of everybody who ever visited him for practice on any level for decades, years after years, he would not be considered a great Zen master. He would be arrested as a bone breaker, you know, some kind of weird fetish he had. Even in ancient times, they would have done something to him, punished him for that. Okay, so 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 that's a little bit about sin. Is that? Oh yeah. Then I wanted to tell. Then the famous story that is told by Western hippies and seekers, many of them great people. I'm not against hippies either. Uh, but anyway, they wanted to be like siddhas. They were, they had, they would have long hair, they'd do yoga, they might wrongly do some kind of too much sex, <laughs> and live, go to Nepal, you know, and smoke a lot or whatever. And, um, they always tell the story of how Narupa was a professor. I used to take it a little bit personally. He was a famous professor in the Honda University. He was a door guardian, which was considered the top debater. Like the like the equivalent of the chancellor or president of the university, provost, where it put at the doors in those universities, because you didn't keep your job there by having a contract with trustees. You kept your job by being the sharpest philosophically and pedagogically of anybody in the university, and so you would determine the curriculum of the university. So he he was in that position, very high, like a dean, you know. And then this lady came, cleaning lady and was sweeping there, and he was reading in his study, and she said to you, hey, Sunny, how you doing? I'm reading there. And he was talking to the cliche, and said, I'm fine. How are you? And she said, fine. And then she said, well, do you understand that, what you're reading, Sunny? you understand those words? And he said, yeah, yeah, I understand. And she said, oh, good, good, good. And then she says, did you understand the meaning? Do you understand the meaning? And he hesitated a minute, and he said, yeah, 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 yeah. I got the meaning. And then she burst into tears, boo-hoo. And blubbering and blubbering in his office there, and he's like, "What's the matter with you? Why are you crying?" She said, "Well, I'm crying because you're the dean of this university, and you just told a lie because you do not know the meaning." And well, really, well, who is it? You know, she must have said it in some convincing way because he didn't just say, "Well, how do you know?" He just said, "Who does understand the meaning?" He kind of almost confessed it, and she said, "My brother does, my brother Tilapa." He said, well, where is he? She says, well, he's out in the jungle somewhere. He said, can I go study with him? She said, yes, sure you can. But you have to say a hundred thousand mantras of, of, Om Sri Vajahehe Ruru Kam Hum Hum Pe Dakini Jala Shambaram Swaha. The mantra of the super bliss Buddha. Okay, fine. And he was so moved by her. And then she turned into rainbow light and flew out the window, the Kulif lady. So he realized it was a real message from the angels, you know. And then he did actually give up his professorship and he left the university and he went off and he studied for a long time with Dilapa and that's a long story. And he became the great Naropa, the great uh, tantric Siddha. Adept, you know, which is how I like to translate Siddha. Mahasiddha, great adept. But then the story that they don't tell that's also in the life of Naropa is 
But he then, while studying with Philippa, he took a vow not to go back and never do any academic debates. So he didn't go hang around with his old university. You know, he was off in the jungle and in meditation caves and, 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 and death, you know, charnel grounds, things like that, auspicious places. But then one point, finally, the people sought him out from the monastery and desperately asked him to come back because some, some kind of a fundamentalist guy who just had a sort of magic trick about meditating <coughs> came and defeated them all and was taking over the curriculum and they were freaked out because they couldn't do the studies they wanted to do. So he did go back thinking to defend the university. But then when he got there, he couldn't speak. And so then the guy was ridiculing him. Oh, you came, you got your great Narva, and he came and he was going to defeat me. And now he's like all choked up. He doesn't just speak because I'm so cool. This this yogi, this guy who was the, had the, the debate tricks you know, that he could defeat anybody. And then Tilipa suddenly showed up. It was all very embarrassing, but then Tilipa showed up. And then Tilipa said to the guy who had corrupted the university, well, you, he just, the reason he can't speak is because he took a vow to his guru never to debate. But now, Narapa, I give you a privilege to make one exception on that. So go ahead. So at that point, then Narapa suddenly opened his mouth and instead of a, of, of a formal argument, a giant lion's roar came out of his mouth, and the guy fainted and conceded defeat. And, but the lion's roar was, of course, the teaching of emptiness and selflessness. That's what all this means, you know. So in other words, it isn't like an either-or siddha versus scholastic or scholar. The greatest siddhas were great scholars. The greatest scholastics were great siddhas. And uh, in India, this is, you know, Pandita. Siddha Pandita or Pandita Siddha is like a thing. Kedrup in Tibetan they call it. Kedrup. Pandita Siddha. And uh, so sorry, the people who are the great scholars are the ones who really do crazy wisdom. It are capable of it because by doing the great scholarship and then doing the Siddha type practices on top of the great scholarship with an understanding that is unerringly goes along the iron rail of clear reason and common sense, then um, then they get real results. You know, that's the way of getting the real results. If you just do one or the other, without, one without the other, then it's, it takes a longer time. Because you have to do both. Okay? So that's that. Now I would just, in conclusion, I'd like to read, as in starting my Poetry of Enlightenment series, I would like to read some 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 verses from Master Krishna's Enlightenment songs, which are called Doha, Kanha Charya is his name, and Kanhapa, the Tibetans call him. He's one of the three great yogis of uh, Chakrasambara tradition, Luipa, which I think is Matyendranath, Kanhapa, or Krishna Charya, and uh, Gandapa, these are the three great, three greats. But it doesn't include Narapa because he was later than them, but he was a disciple of theirs, actually. Yotilapa and he were later, so they were, he was kind of a disciple. So these three, so, so, but Kanapa was one, but here's something for you to, 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 to I was going to say chew on, and that is that this Kanapa was really highly considered one of the great founders of the yogas of 
Chakrasambha, or the Super Bliss Buddha machine, Super Bliss machine Buddha. But um, he came to a bad end because he had a difficult relationship with females, with Dakini, and not just human ones, but Dakini females, even though he was a great bliss, uh, tree, you know, guy. And um, it was presaged in his life his, that his death would eventually be caused by some Dakinis who became annoyed with his arrogance. But um, also, he was presaged with his teacher called Jalan Daripa. His immediate teacher was someone called Jalan Daripa. And he was meditating at a apple tree, or maybe mango, I don't know exactly, I forget, fruit tree anyway. And he developed such a strong energy connecting to clear light through the Rajra channels that just by gazing he could pick the fruit. And there was the fruit would then fall off its stem just by gazing. So then he jumped up and said to John Jennifer, okay, now I'm going to go out and I'm going to do the wild lifestyle, you know, kind of advanced level of conduct of a little bit. That's a little bit crazy with some direction. And that guru said, no, you can't do that yet. You shouldn't do that. He says, well, why not? Look, I can knock a fruit off a tree just with my gaze. He said, yes, but can you lift it back on and reattach it to its stem with your gaze? No, no, who would do that? Well, you shouldn't go off until you can do that. Oh, forget that. You're really being too old-fashioned. I'm going to go out there and really do some crazy stuff. And he took off. And so then this related to him ending up having like a, not a, not a proper good relationship with, uh, with the females. There's another great story that connects to which I like where he, he was going along and he was going to give an initiation in Demchak or Hibachak or something to the king of Benares, had an appointment. He came to the Ganges with his entourage and there was a newbie in the entourage, a new disciple named Kusari. And he was carrying all the equipment. Like, like things. And, and so, there was an old crone on the bank of the Ganga where they were going to cross to go on the side, the southern side where the city is. And, um, and she looked up at Kanhapa, you know, the guru at the head of the procession. And she said, Oh, Guruji, Guruji, great guru, please carry me across the river. I'm so old that I can't walk, I can't wade, I can't swim. And I go to going to dead Benares to die. Please take me across the river. And then the disciples just shoot her out of the way, the senior disciples, and said, come on, lady, this is Kanapa, the great yogi. He's got to get to, has an appointment with the king of Benares. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, they, and they marched right across the surface of the water because they were miracle workers. They were siddhas. And they just walked right across the water. So then uh, Kosali comes along, puffing and puffing, carrying everything, lots of things. Bags and boxes and bushels and drums and musical instruments and, and you know, and whatever. And um, he sees the old lady and says, well, I, I can't walk in the water. I have to go back and forth a few times fording, but carrying all this stuff. You know, my might as well give that old lady a ride. She doesn't look heavy at all. She's all shriveled, you know, <laughs> and dried out. So he says, okay, come on, lady, get up on my shoulders. And then he's carrying still some things and he's planning to make it come back. But of course he has to wade through the river. So he's wading across the ford. He hasn't, he's a newbie. He doesn't have the powers yet to walk on the water. And then he feels this kind of vibe like, 
like a like a rocket ship suddenly is around or a big noise and they he gets dizzy and he's he gets blurred, his perception doesn't know what's going on. And then suddenly and then he lets go of all of his parcels and then he don't, doesn't know what happened to the lady on his back. But then suddenly she has swiveled around in front of him. She's an exquisite ruby red Vajrayogini. And she is in embrace, you know, intimate embrace with him. And they are a hundred meters in the sky. And he's like, and he's feeling good, kind of, but he's a little freaked out. Like, what? And then people are shouting from the far shore of the river, of the ford, saying, hey, that's just Kusali, he's a newbie, the guru's over here. And she said, well, the guru had his chance to show compassion, carry me across the river. But he blew it this time, and this is the third time this kind of thing happened, or something like that. And this guy, he picked me up, so I'm picking him up. See you around. And boom, he went to the Dakini Paradise, and he leaped ahead of the other yogis. Now that, so, and then the, the, the whole thing, something, some Dakini was annoyed with Kanapa years later. He didn't give many teachings. He wrote important books. I mean, he was not a lowly guy, the Kanapa. He was a great adept. But he just had this one remaining problem that he never dealt with in that lifetime. And um, some yogini gave him, some dakini gave him some poison or something, and then some other one went for medicine. He sent another one who he had sort of more dominated to go get the medicine, but then she sort of dawdled because she was irritated with him. and So then he never got the antidote to the poison he died. So his thing with women was just not good, you know even though he was really great in other ways. You know. So this is very complicated. See, what people don't realize about all these siddhas and yogis and everything and shamans is that there are so many inconceivable dimensions and levels of enlightenment. You can be really enlightened to a great degree and yet not Buddha yet. You know, Kanapa, Kanapa the siddhas are like, the Mahasiddhas are like Buddhas. Most of them are Buddhas. And he was almost maybe 10 stages, Bodhisattva, 11 stages, they sometimes say 13 stages. He was very high stage, but not quite all the way there was the problem. But anyway, he wrote great poems. Let me read one of his poems. Uh, he, he reads this one. Om Namo Vajrasattvaya. And that is Namo means I bow. Om, of course, is Om. Om, Om from Buddhism, Ah, U, Um. And, uh, the Ah, is the body, ooh is the speech, and mm is the mind. So ah, ooh, mm, the ah plus ooh makes o. Oh. So om celebrates the presence, the infinite presence and the immersion, the permeation of everything, subtle and coarse and everything in all infinite reality of the Buddha's body, speech, and mind. The many Buddhas, you know. In a way, both one and many, like neither one and both, and whatever. Okay, so so that's the Om. Namo is I bow. Vajrasattva, dative case, to Vajrasattva, in order to become Vajrasattva myself. Because dative means you bow to someone for a purpose. And Vajrasattva means the hero of the Vajra. And Vajra has many meanings, but its deepest meaning is the deep energy of the universe, the infinite energy of the clear light transparency of the void, which is not a bright light. It's a grayish translucency, transparency, 
an energy and a light that is in everything, so there's nothing obstructing it. It's not one light coming from one place shining on another. It's it's the level where everything is made of light, so there are no shadows. Another, and the light doesn't need to be bright because everything is self-luminous. So transparency is almost a better word for it. But clear light is so established. So he says here, social persons full of pride say, I understand the ultimate reality, but only one out of ten million ever attained that impeccability. Scholars with their vanity make a fuss over their Vedas, their histories and sciences, buzzing around their outer peripheries like bees swarming over ripe wood apples. Male and female spirits of enlightenment envelop the unshakable akshobhya. The lotus seed, intrinsically pure, is seen in the body, totally natural. Space waters it, its soil of boundless light, its root is planted as total abandon. The Avaduti central channel rises as its main stalk, and its bud is of the syllable hum. The solar and lunar sides are stilled by the Rasana and Lalana nerves. That's the same as Ida and Pingala in Hinduism. Four lotus pads linked by four stems are the seats of the great blisses. And here he's referring to, these are the right and left channel. Solar is the right and uh, red channel and blood channel. And left is the semen, white lunar channel. And the subtle body yogi uses it. Avaduti is the central channel. And then there are these four levels, brain, throat, navel, uh, heart, navel, navel including the lower chakra, root chakra. And when you do four, there can be seven, five, there are different systems for different yogas. And um, But stilling the solar and the lunar sides means the energy all goes into the central channel. And then four lotus pads linked by four stems are the seats of great. And then you have brain to throat is bliss, you know, great bliss, throat to heart uh, is super bliss, uh, is, no, is bliss, brain to throat is bliss, bliss to heart is, is, uh, is uh, great bliss, uh, heart to navel is ecstatic bliss, navel to, to genital is Supreme bliss. Then, then going back from gentle to navel is great, is bliss. From navel to heart is great bliss. From heart to throat is ecstatic bliss. And from throat to brain is super bliss. And there are different ways of doing it, but those are the four, four lotus pads. These are the seats of the great blisses, these four blisses. Arisen from the seeds of A and Ram, the lotus flowers blossom wide. The great bliss hero, like a bee, drinks deeply of the honeys. So now this is the Siddha, who's in a subtle body, who's like a bee going from lotus to lotus. And, uh, and I'm, actually, I'm, it's a long, it's a little long, so, and I'm, I'm getting tired and we're getting late in the talk, so I'll come back to that. But anyway, that's the type of thing these Siddhas are doing, by the way. And that's just inside one's own body. It doesn't necessarily involve a consort, but it could. Uh, it could involve one.
but it doesn't necessarily, I always have to edit in the typo, so I see. I can't restrain myself. I can see I'm going to have to update this, uh, this translation. I want to do a short one that I particularly like. Where is that? He says, Bhairava and Kali blocked away seeing that Kanha's mind is numb. Wherever Kanha goes, he remains himself, indifferent to every mental realm. The three realms, Bhairava and Kali, that's Shiva and the fierce form of Uma, and uh, they are connected, blocked away. By that he means they are in his body, they are partners of his, and they block the channels, the left and right channels, and so that his mind goes numb because they blocked away. It goes numb because his mind goes into the central channel, into a subtle body. No longer, uh, no longer, you know, he gets beyond pleasure and pain. And then he says, wherever Kanha goes, he remains himself, indifferent to every mental realm. Then he says, the three realms are threefold, yet each contains the others. Kanha says, existence is utterly selective. And the refrain, wherever Kanha goes, he re-examines himself, he remains himself, indifferent to every mental realm. So here, the three realms are the realm of desire, the realm of form, of pure subtle form, or realm of matter, pure matter, and then the realm of the immaterial. And what he means by they contain the others is that you, our bodies are in the desire realm and the bar, bodies of divine yogis when they manifest a particular archetypal body are usually desire realm heaven bodies. But in ourselves when we achieve in meditation what are called the four dhyanas or the four brahma viharas, the four pure abodes, we go into the realm of infinite love, infinite compassion, infinite joy, infinite equanimity. And when we go in that realm, we are actually, that means we have that in ourselves. And so the, those realms of form, in one way they are above us in another realm, but in another way they're in ourselves because we have access to them through, through meditation. And actually if we, through advanced meditation, and actually, if we are not forewarned about it and don't know about the, the, the sort of, you know, enlightened vision of the cosmos, when we reach even the first of 17 levels of heavens that are in that realm of pure form, what, what is meant by pure is that when we do that, we leave a gendered body and we have bodies that are pure male and female both. And they don't have hard boundaries like skin. You know, they, and they kind of are like fields, but yet they have a kind of, they have a kind of boundary because they're deities actually, but they're deities that they can kind of almost melt to each other like ghosts or something, and they're completely blissful in themselves because they have male-female union in every cell, you could say. And that's why they feel pure love, and pure compassion is where they are not unaware of the lower realms of beings that are seeking something and feeling dissatisfied. And even they have some vestige of dissatisfaction, of imperfect bliss, although they're quite blissed out in love, because love and compassion make you blissed out. So, but, but then when they feel, or they merge because of their vastness, those deities, with beings who are feeling frustrated, 
then they feel compassion for them. That is, they they go, they can't bear their the way they feel, so they won't help them. And then the joy they feel is where they see that in the energy of the beings that they can merge with as as Brahma realm deities, there is that bliss. They do have the same seed of bliss in themselves, even though they may be a complete warthog running after a female, you know, in the hot spring, like being attacked by lions, and, you know, like really freaked out. And yet inside there's bliss. There's the bliss of pure love, pure joy, pure equanimity. And then finally they get to equanimity where they feel, which is almost close to Buddhahood, but it is, it's close to Brahma. It is Brahmahood. So the high god Brahma is dwells in that realm. And it is said that at the very top limit of that realm, actually inaccessible to some Brahmas and some universes, those that in other words think they're the creator or something, because some of them unfortunately make that mistake, because they are huge, they're amazing big gods. But up there is where all the Buddha lands are, on the event horizon of infinity. And then the third realm is the bodiless realm, and that's a realm of infinite space, infinite consciousness, absolute nothingness, or what seems like nothingness. And, you know, seeming nothingness, and I should say not really enough, but seeming nothingness, and seem, seeming nothing whatsoever, and beyond consciousness and unconsciousness. And those are, there are also deities in those realms that you'd get stuck in if you thought Nirvana was some state of ultimate separation. Because they are deities that are separated from any kind of coarse embodiment. In fact, they just think they're just purely mental. And they have, therefore, they can't contact any other being and they're unaware of them. So they're actually sort of, they, they don't have compassion and in a way they don't have joy. They just have stillness. They have peacefulness and they're addicted to that peacefulness. Because they're sort of into self-annihilating because they're sort of, haven't learned about bliss in a certain way when they get stuck there. And the yogi who goes there then could get stuck there if they didn't know, if they were sensitive and afraid of pain and also suffering, and also felt maybe they couldn't be compassionate enough to help all the other beings, so they wanted out of the of life, they might get stuck there as such a deity. The disappointment of being stuck in, that, in those formless realms as a deity is in the formless realms, it's like being asleep in a way. Uh, it's much more far out, but it's close to that. It has a small element like that in that there's little sense of time in those infinite states. And therefore, you don't enjoy a long time that you're here, and you're just suddenly out again. You're kind of hardly know. When you do know you're in there, it's not like therefore like ordinary unconsciousness, but it's close to that. So anyway, he's saying all these are present in us, even in the desire realm, and the being in the form realm has connection to the way we are in the desire realm, and sort of formless, etc. So they're all contained inside each other. When I translated that, I didn't really understand that the way I would now. It's so fun. Then he says, then he has the refrain, wherever Kanha goes, he he remains himself, indifferent to every mental realm. Whatever occurs, all of it disappears. Kanha occurs, so his mind does not relax. In other words, he doesn't just let it go into into some kind of simulated nothingness or something. He occurs, and he, and he knows he'll disappear anyway, but he'll reappear in a way. It's the idea. Wherever Kanha goes, he remains himself indifferent to every mental realm. Here, Kanha, the Jinnah palace, is quite close. Though Kanha says so, it enters not his heart. Wherever Kanha goes, he remains himself indifferent to every mental realm. So there, there someone is calling to him, some other yogi or something that 
to go into the mandala. The Jina palace means the mandala and the pure lands, which are high in the top level of the Brahma realm, so the realms of pure matter, at the event horizon of the infinite, of the immaterial infinite. And he doesn't get attracted to that because he doesn't get, he doesn't fall for that because he, he himself is the palace. That means he's a Mahasiddha, so his mandala is his own ordinary body has all the mandalas in it, in that sense. He's a real Siddha. This video was brought to you in part through the generous support of Tibet House U.S. membership community and viewers like you. To learn more about the benefits of Tibet House membership, please visit tibethouse.us. Thanks for watching. Tashi Delek.